Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora everyone, it's Mickey here and you're listening to Wikipedia. And this week on the podcast I speak to Beth McLean, a PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia, all about iron metabolism. Beth and I discuss the importance of iron for our health, the problem of low iron stores particularly for women and how this goes unrecognised. And the common and not so common symptoms of iron deficiency. So how we recognize if there is an issue with iron. We talk about some of the best strategies to lift iron stores and delve a little bit into the performance realm and why iron is important for performance. I've got links to both the paper that Beth and I talk about in this conversation and also where you can find Beth with her uh, LinkedIn profile and her ResearchGate profile and it's super exciting to see where her current research will be heading in the next couple of years given that she's had a bit of a break with regards to COVID lockdowns and and things like that and we talk a little bit about that as well. Before we jump into the conversation though I'd just like to remind you the best way to support this podcast is to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, tell a mate and leave a five-star review so uh, that would be amazing if you could do that and of course the other way you could support the podcast is to head over to my website mickeywillardin.com and sign up to any one of my plans the recipe access portal is $12 a month you get access to over 900 recipes that are regularly updated uh, the ability to join our Facebook group where we have regular lives and uh, written Q&A forums and access to me through the online portal to pick my brain on anything nutrition and health related all for 12 bucks a month that's at mickeywillardin.com all right team I hope you enjoy the conversation that I have with Beth McLean Beth McLean, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon, your morning, over in Perth, Western Australia, uh, to talk all about iron deficiency. And as we jumped on the call, you said to me that you just really want people to appreciate, I think, the importance of this as a disease. And can I just share with you, in my experience, that anyone I imagine thinking about iron deficiency would not label it a disease. Yeah, absolutely. It gets so normalized. It seems like the commonality of iron deficiency has undermined the actual importance of how this affects people day to day. I completely agree. Like with my mostly woman clients I see, and we discuss their iron parameters and, and where they might be insufficient, and we have the conversation, often it's dismissed as my iron is always low. You know, my GP's not concerned. Or my mother, she had low iron. I've got like, almost like it. They, they're resigned to this um, thing because, as you say, it's so normalised. 
definitely. And that's the most restricting part about getting treatment and taking it seriously. That um, it tends to be a very female-based disease, especially in Western countries. It's there's such a higher increased risk due to menstrual bleeding and pregnancy that it just seems to get dismissed as a cause that's just it's going to occur in women and it really takes the healthcare providers to take it seriously yeah. to help them get to a point where they can feel more normal. Yeah. Um, can we kick off with sort of like a 101? Because I think part of that understanding why it's important is even understanding the role of iron in the first place and, you know, where we get it from, whether there's any misconceptions there and what even deficiency mm-hmm. sort of looks like. So, you know, why is iron important for us? Yeah. So, iron is a very fundamental nutrient in our diet. Um, iron is utilized across many of the bodily systems, such as it's involved in iron transport through the blood, uh, through oxygen transport, sorry, through the blood, and it's involved in DNA synthesis, neurogenesis, neurotransmitter myelination, um, enzymatic processes, and there's many other areas that it's used in. So it kind of results in this very non-specific presentation of symptoms such as fatigue, exhaustion, brain fog, heart palpitations, um, symptoms that can really occur in other diseases, which can kind of mask it. Yeah. Um, iron is absorbed through our diet. So we only lose about one to two milligrams of iron daily um, through our skin usually. So that's through skin shedding or through sweating. Um, and typically we have between 3,000 to 4,000 milligrams of iron in our body. So generally, just to account for these losses, um, we absorb the iron through our diet through two different pathways. Uh, so we have non-heme iron and heme iron. Heme iron is only available in meat products and it's 10 times more effectively absorbed than non-heme iron, which is the only type of iron available in plant-based products which can make it really difficult for someone on a plant-based diet to absorb iron and just really increases their risk of developing an iron deficiency. I feel like that's one of the first um, points that we should just sort of sit on for a minute because often I talk to clients and this and vegetarian clients and they say, oh, you know, I know I don't really take an iron supplement, but, you know, I eat a lot of spinach or um, I have a lot of legumes because I feel like there's this misconception out there that they provide as much useful iron as the sort of heme-based iron sources, but that's not the case, is it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's this misunderstanding because iron on our products is labelled nutritionally by the milligram. So when you see that there's such a high concentration of iron available in your leafy greens, you might believe that you're getting just as much as you are through eating meat products yes and I see that I I do see so they there is a lot so in my field in nutrition out on social media there is certainly this um uh people posit like different types of dietary approaches as being the best and of course one of the uh one of the things that we hone in on is the bioavailability of iron and so when you see that a vegetarian diet can provide 30 milligrams of iron a day that looks quite impressive if you're if you're not aware of the fact that we can't actually absorb it. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. This is one of the misconceptions that we often get in this field. Yeah. And Beth, it's interesting actually. So in New Zealand, and I believe they'll have this in Australia where you're based now, and probably in Scotland where you're from, um, they they often cost out the how much it would cost to follow a diet that meets our nutrient requirements 
at different levels of our budget. And they have to make sure that all of those nutrients are uh, supplied by the dietary choices. And what I see in New Zealand is that they include Milo as a food choice. And this is how we are able to meet our iron consumption levels or the amount that we should be eating per day because the amount of meat that we're supposed to eat per day is so low that they can't, they can't sort of recommend meat as a, uh, a food of choice. How bioavailable is iron from these other sources, from the synthetic sources, I suppose? From the synthetic sources, I'm not entirely sure, but I imagine it will be coming as the form of non-heme iron. So absolutely less effective in terms of absorption compared to your heme iron from meat products. So it just can't really be uh, compared to similar absorption, really. Yeah, yeah. So because I haven't seen studies actually on the fortification um, of iron and, and how useful it is compared to red meat. So I just thought that was interesting. Um other than red meat, though, uh, what are other good sources of iron for people who might not necessarily eat red meat but might eat other protein? Yeah, absolutely. So there is iron available in eggs. Um, so leafy greens are one of the ones. Obviously, as we discussed, they're not as good at absorbing, but they are one of the highest kind of concentrated iron sources full of non-heme iron. Um, you've got beans and legumes as well. Um, these kind of non-heme iron products are best absorbed with vitamin C. Mm. Um, and it's best to take them kind of around times where you're not going to be consuming tannins, such as tea and coffee, and um, just to try and help promote the absorption as much as you can, really. Yeah. So you mentioned that we lose iron through the skin and through sweat. Um, and obviously, a woman with heavy menstrual cycles, you mentioned as well, are more at risk. How common is it for an, for an athlete to be iron deficient? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not certain on the exact proportions of um, iron deficient athletes but they are a much greater risk of developing iron deficiency through kind of inflammation and um, so as we're aware exercise is an inflammatory process um, and inflammation is really one of the key risk factors for developing iron deficiency yeah so during our absorption um iron is absorbed into the gut cells which kind of that's the first stage of absorption but after that it needs to pass through the gut cells into the bloodstream to be actually absorbed functionally and this involves going through a channel membrane protein called ferroportin. And this channel is regulated by hepcidin, which is released from the liver in response to high circulatory iron levels. Mm. And this is just to try and cap off the absorption daily of iron so that you don't get an iron overload. However, this same process is actually upregulated in an inflammatory environment. So things such as exercise or inflammatory conditions, such as gastrointestinal disease or any kind of chronic disease, upregulate this blockage of um, iron absorption into the blood so this occurring in athletes where there's more of an increased iron demand just puts them at a much greater risk they can also have internal bleeding as a result of exercise and there's things such as um heel strike hemolysis of red blood cells which also just increases that risk of developing iron deficiency so it definitely as a woman in sport this just doubles down on your increased risk as well, yeah. but there is a risk for men too. And what about um, losses through sweat? If we lose it through sweat and you're a heavy sweater, that would place you more at risk as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that increased sweating 
does definitely add to your risk in sport. Yeah. So Beth, when we're looking at iron markers, what is it that we should look for? And I, I guess I ask this because I see a lot of blood test results in my work and I'm looking at someone's iron panel and I'm, or I'm only seeing what their ferritin is. And so they haven't had an iron panel done and their ferritin looks to be within this, uh, normal reference range if you like and so the GP or the doctor and this is absolutely no slight to doctors but you know they're just looking at it and going well your ferritin looks normal or you know it's at 50 or 60 or it's at 130 so are we missing anything if we're just looking at ferritin? I think ferritin is one of the most important markers actually Mm. in terms of detecting an iron deficiency so it's generally one of these ones that really indicates how much iron you have in storage so um, a ferritin less than 30 ideally should be treated with iron therapy. Um, this could either come in the form of oral iron supplementation or intravenous iron. Yeah, and if you can, though, have a high iron, uh, sorry, a high ferritin level, but have low iron markers, can't you? Yes. So the, in cases of inflammation, um, generally um, the indication of iron treatment is where a patient has a ferritin of less than 80 uh, with a transferrin saturation less than 20%. This is because hepcidin actually sequesters iron from the circulatory system into the ferritin stores, which kind of inflates the appearance of the ferritin stores and kind of masks the presence of an iron deficiency through this. Yeah, okay. And is there an easy way to, um, if you're getting your iron measured is it always a good idea to actually look at ferritin and then also look at that iron sort of panel as well yes so the recommendation usually would be to look for your hemoglobin concentration your ferritin and your transferrin saturation as this overall kind of allows you to detect whether there is uh iron deficiency through regular kind of ferritin less than 30 or if it is going to be an iron deficiency through inflammation okay no that's awesome um can we talk a little bit about the sex differences that exist in those iron sort of parameters or those cutoffs? Like where do those cutoffs come from? But particularly hemoglobin maybe. Yeah, so hemoglobin concentration currently um, indicates your anemia, uh, well, the presence of anemia. And uh, in men, it's been defined as less than 130 grams per litre, whereas in women, it's been defined as less than 120 grams per litre. And this kind of difference in definition, it's currently um, the WHO standard. However, it's really under review at the moment as the original um, creation of that lower female threshold was due to commonality. Um, So we know that there's a greater increased risk of women developing iron deficiency. And it does appear that the creation of that limit was based on many women being iron deficient as opposed to taking into consideration that maybe that's a problem and that they should be receiving treatment at a higher level. So there's been a lot of research currently kind of looking into different ways to understand clinically um, what the definition should be in women. Um, There's been a few really good studies where they've looked at different markers to see at what point um, a person's body will start looking to absorb more iron and increase their absorption capacity as a definition of when they become iron deficient. So with this ongoing research, um, it'll be really interesting to see what the output is and how this could change um, the diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia for women. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it's sort of almost like they've, well, so many people are deficient, so we'll just lower that reference range and not really deal with the particular problem at hand. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a very blatant misunderstanding that these 
patients who do have iron deficiency do have symptoms that affect them daily. Yeah. And that this is reducing their quality of life and that this should be taken seriously. So Beth, why is it that we've normalized the symptoms that are associated with iron deficiency? What I mean, you know, and I know that you might not know have a concrete answer, but I mean you're an expert, you study iron. So what what do you know of it? Uh, it, it appears that usually these symptoms are normalized because they're so non-specific. Okay, yeah. That generally they don't appear, there's not one indicatory symptom that just really indicates that this must be an iron problem. It could be mm. a multitude of different causes. And because it tends to be in women, it seems to have kind of been associated more with the processes that women go through, such as heavy menstrual bleeding or regular menstrual bleeding or through pregnancy. And despite these being a risk factor, it seems to just be normalized as something that doesn't need to be treated as much. Yeah. And so what is heavy menstrual bleeding? And I think that's important to sort of, because I think for a woman who, um, with a menstrual cycle, like her experience is really individual compared to someone else. And if you're not aware of how something might be, then you might not know whether yours is normal or abnormal. Yeah, absolutely. So there are common indicators of heavy menstrual bleeding, such as if you've got flooding of um, any sanitary products throughout the night, um, multiple changes of sanitary products at the day, using double um, protection, such as a tampon and a sanitary towel. Um, it's usually defined, um, it's not defined, um, a typical menstrual period usually involves 50 mils of blood loss per cycle, okay. um, whereas someone with heavy menstrual bleeding will lose about 80 mils. So this generally means they're losing quite a lot more iron per cycle. Um, so someone, it's usually about 0.5 milligrams of iron per mil of blood. So that's about 25 milligrams of iron loss for someone with a regular menses. And then someone with heavy menstrual bleeding is going to lose up to 40 milligrams of iron. Okay. Which is, it really adds up over the course of a year, which can kind of put them at a stage where they're losing just under 500 milligrams of iron a year just through menses. Yeah. So, and is it, are there any mm -hmm. recommendations specifically for women with heavy menstrual cycles? So should should someone who falls into that category should they take specific note and maybe supplement in and around their cycle or generally speaking what is the sort of approach I'm not too sure on cycle specific um kind of supplementation um however there are a lot of interventions that do get suggested such as tranexamic acid these are discussions that would have to be had through a GP obviously yeah. um but tranexamic acid is usually taken at the start of a period to try and help reduce the blood loss through kind of acting as a clotting agent um, so that just re reduces the amount of iron loss per menstrual cycle um, other investigations can include just looking and investigating with your GP to see whether or not there are any underlying causes of this heavy menstrual bleeding yeah yeah um, some women will choose to go on contraceptive options as well just to see if that can reduce it but it's very much a process that can take some time through a GP yeah, and I, I totally agree with you, actually. Like, if you've got heavy menstrual cycles, then potentially you might um, benefit from having an iron supplement at the time. However, from a health professional sort of perspective, actually looking at that underlying cause of what might be the cause of those heavy menstrual cycles to then sort of look at whatever dietary or um, lifestyle things that can actually help as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So Beth, your research looks at um, iron sort of deficiency in 
general population, I suppose. And you sent me through this great paper um, that went through some of what you're looking at with regards to iron in recognition, that screening stuff, and also looking at the screening information and also the um, sort of some of the symptoms and stuff that people are talking about. So can you, we talk more specifically about what your research is looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of at the start of my PhD, just to get me involved in finding out about the problem of iron deficiency in the local population, I've been really looking at just screening for the prevalence of anemia um, throughout the local population that's at risk. So that's um, women of reproductive age. So I've been doing finger prick testing, which um, using like a hemocue device, it allows you to um, analyze their hemoglobin concentration just through finger prick samples, um, which is a nice convenient screening tool. It does have the limitation of only allowing us to investigate whether or not someone has anemia, um, but doesn't really indicate whether they've got a lower ferritin level. But it's a good starting point for understanding the prevalence um, of anemia in this population, especially in comparison. Um, I'm obviously from the UK. And our understanding of iron deficiency on the whole there is a lot more limited compared to Western Australia. Really? Um, definitely. So, it, You mean in the general population or sort of from a health professional perspective? Yeah, so it's kind of both. It's from a health professional perspective, generally the course from going through a GP will result in oral iron supplementation. And if that doesn't work, there's no further help. Mm-hmm. which is really limiting whereas in western australia they're very interested in intravenous iron um it's a very effective form of iron deficiency correction that just isn't really that available in many areas of the uk um it seems like the thresholds are a lot more stringent on actually giving out this treatment so someone with a ferritin less than nine is kind of in the area where you might be able to get this treatment Um, otherwise you're generally limited to oral iron supplementation which often doesn't agree with people yeah and I think that's one of the reasons why so many people are um loath to take it like when I speak to clients and they're like yeah my GP gave me some supplements but I don't really take them and often it is because the form of iron that they're getting is just um causes constipation and and gut Mm -hmm. upset so what are the best so intravenous iron might not be so readily available do you know much about the oral iron sort of supplements and what might be better tolerated compared to others yeah so between different compound types it appears that there isn't too much difference Um, this could be debated more within the literature however generally our kind of focus is looking at the actual dosage um so generally we advise that um patients take a 65 milligrams elemental iron supplement Mm -hmm. and so because there is an increased risk of having these abdominal side effects such as diarrhea constipation um generally if someone isn't tolerating a 65 milligram iron tablet um taken daily they can take the dosage down to on alternate days just to see whether or not this can kind of help and it also reduces that hepcidin upregulation um on the alternate day which just allows them to kind of reduce any inflammation as a result of taking these iron tablets however this can be kind of hard for patients to encompass into their routine as it might be a bit more inconvenient um so generally um just looking to make sure that they don't get an overkill dose of elemental iron as some people can be prescribed really high doses and this just puts them off taking oral iron supplements Mm. and beth as i understand it from an athlete perspective uh if we have an iron supplement it would be quite good to sort of take it in the morning because of the 
the diurnal sort of rhythm of hepcidin is that right so hepcidin sort of rises across the day would that be I'm not too sure on the hepcidin cycle throughout the day yeah, um, yeah. however from my understanding most people get recommended to take it before or after food with in the kind of breakfast area of the day yeah yeah, yeah. no that's awesome now what are some of the what were some of the surprises that you've seen with regards to the maybe the screening or the symptoms when you've asked your populations? Yeah, absolutely. So to start with, with the screening perspective, um, I've actually been doing a literature review on the different national and global guidelines for screening iron deficiency in women of reproductive age. And other than in pregnancy cases, there really isn't any kind of guidelines that I've found yet. Um, for this population which it seems bizarre that no one has actually covered this given the prevalence of iron deficiency yeah what is it so in in the western sort of population like what is the prevalence of iron deficiency yeah so it's generally really hard to actually get a fixed answer on the prevalence of iron deficiency as most studies tend to look at it as just anemia um, which definitely skews the kind of understanding of how much iron deficiency is there, as you can be iron deficient without anemia. Um, so, yeah, anemia affects one in four people worldwide. And they suggested that around 50% of cases of anemia are a result of iron deficiency. However, yeah, this just isn't capturing everyone that isn't anemic with iron deficiency. No, and I know in New Zealand it can be, and you know, there are small sort of studies looking at iron deficiency, but often what they rely on is more sort of from a population perspective is iron intake. And of course, because what we were discussing with non-heme iron as being sort of, you know, this is the iron that, that people are eating, that's sort of almost taken as a proxy for the potential for deficiency. So that in itself might be masking the population because there's, there's certainly no population-wide studies looking at iron deficiency um, here at least. Yeah, it's something that really needs to be worked on. Yeah. Okay, so from a, a screening perspective, it's a little bit more challenging. What else have you been looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So the symptoms that you mentioned, um, that's kind of been a main area of my research currently. Um, just as there is such a wide range of non-specific symptoms, and it seems like the patient-lived experience of iron deficiency gets a little bit ignored in terms of the actual research. It's very much about clinical outcomes um, and not as much about what they're actually experiencing. Um, so I've kind of been working to try and document what the most frequently um, proposed symptoms of iron deficiency are from patients themselves. We're also doing a really interesting study um, looking at the symptom resolution timeframes for these different symptoms after treatment. So this is generally looking at intravenous iron because it's such a rapid correction of iron deficiency. So about six weeks afterwards, I'm doing a qualitative analysis with these patients to understand if they found that different symptoms had resolved in different timeframes, as this is something that clinicians and patients have often reported, but there's actually been nothing documented so far. So yeah. it's interesting to understand how different they feel within the different timeframes after treatment. And it, yeah, it's, it's really quite interesting. So fascinating. So with your um, symptom-related research, I mean, you mentioned brain fog, shortness of breath, fatigue. What other symptoms are, we, are you finding from your, from your research? Yeah, so there's um, things like pika, that desire to eat non-food substances, which is most commonly like ice or dirt. Um, that one comes up a lot. It generally seems to 
come up a lot where patients have really severe anemia with their iron deficiency as well. Um, but that's also what my studies are going to look at to see if there is definitely a relationship there. And um, restless leg as well seems to come up around the same kind of patients. Um, there's just a multitude of like brain uh, functionality. So that's often one that comes up is just difficulties concentrating, depression, anxiety, um, which makes sense given that iron is involved in neurogenesis and in nerve myelination. So it's really got a strong role in the brain. So it's yeah it's quite fascinating on these resolution studies to understand how much character and mental health improvements patients have had in a response to getting their iron deficiency corrected but that's super interesting isn't it because um and I guess this is the the potential stumbling block if you like is that if the physician doesn't understand or doesn't test for nutrient markers and if someone's going along and and reporting low mood and and anxiety or or that kind of thing then there is more likelihood well one it would be amazing if there was screening on nutrient markers just as a rule but if there isn't then there is more potential that they may be prescribed something to address their mental health issues which might well be uh corrected by looking at nutrient markers potentially yeah absolutely and I've had so many um patient feedback uh reports tell me that they um are just amazed that all these feelings they had and especially mental feelings had been the result of a nutrient deficiency wow that's so interesting isn't it yeah. yeah so Beth what kind of when you're looking at um the lived experience are you using like quality of life measures how are you how are you sort of measuring that yeah, so to start with, we're kind of just really going into that basic qualitative analysis of just asking patients how they felt beforehand and how they felt afterwards and just trying to get some patterns between the different symptoms just to really understand if there's any correlation between these and their um, levels of ferritin and their hemoglobin just to really see if there's any patterns there at all or if it is just really widespread, non-specific symptoms between patients. Yeah. And can you share anything of what you've sort of found? Like, are there thresholds and um, sort of cutoff mark of markers? Where what are you finding? So far, it's really in early stages. So I need so much more data. I found that <laughs> many patients um they'll come in with a set kind of five symptoms that really annoy them and is the reason that they've come in and investigated this feeling and found it was iron deficiency. Um, but then on the other side of iron treatment, this is what they'll discuss. So yes. they might not really be, you know, aware of low energy or things because they were so focused on this feeling of heart palpitations, which was more important to them. So yeah. it's very much in an early stage where I need so much more data to just see if there's any patterns. Um, I'm also limited by the fact that iron deficiency is formed through multiple routes. So not every patient is coming through with a nutritional deficiency because they haven't got enough iron in their diet. You know, there's so many different ways that iron deficiency can occur that this can often be the cause of such a wide range of symptoms. So what are the other routes that we can, that iron deficiency occurs? Yeah, so as we talked about, there is the blood loss through like menstrual bleeding, but this blood loss can also occur in like a surgical setting, a blood donation setting. Um, you've got your inflammation roots, such as your gastrointestinal disease, so like celiac, Crohn's. Um, they've got the added kind of risk factors of less effective absorption. Um, they've also can potentially have internal bleeding from these diseases. So many conditions can have multiple risk factors for iron deficiency. Yeah. 
See, I often see um, ferritin. So ferritin is an acute marker of inflammation as well, as I understand, or it's acute phase reactant. So it will rise with regards to inflammation too, right? Yes. Yeah. So what is happening there? Because often, you know, if people are fatigued and they've got inflammation, but maybe their saturation level is really low, but their ferritin is, is really high. What is happening that we can't actually access that? Yeah, so that ferritin, um, it, it rises because the iron in the circulatory system is sequestered out of the circulation into the ferritin stores by that hepcin upregulation. Okay, now I'm getting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's just taken out of its functional space, really. Yeah. Okay. And is there a point at which ferritin can get too high? So we've talked about the um, uh, you know, below thirty is sort of indicative of um of iron deficiency. Although, would that be individually based? So, if someone has symptoms of deficiency and they're an athlete, for example, I've heard that 50 for an athlete actually is, is a better, mar- better sort of cutoff point. Or is it quite, um, is it just based on your opinion and your experience and things like that? Like, I think it's really based on your kind of like your, your health history, obviously things like environmental things like your amount of exercise would be taken into consideration. I feel like ferritin less than 30 is very much a general rule and it's just to try and improve awareness of that being a problem however absolutely if you feel like there's a lot of symptoms of iron deficiency and you're above 30 um but maybe less than 100 it would really be worthwhile investigating these things with a professional yeah yeah that's great advice um so you spoke I'm sorry we were talking about that sort of uh multiple sort of losses so we talked about inflammation we talked about the potential for sort of internal bleeding the malabsorption th- through that IBD, um, surgical loss, any other sort of route with which someone might be having like enough dietary iron, they think, but could still be potentially deficient? Or have I sort of covered the bases? Yeah, so mainly that's kind of the, you can put a lot of iron into your diet. However, it's really difficult to correct an iron deficiency through diet. Yeah. Um, depending where you've started in your iron deficiency, how severe it is, um generally on a day-to-day basis hepcidin kind of regulates your iron absorption to around 10 milligrams however in an iron deficient state this is thought to increase by about 30 percent in this daily limit um however it is just really difficult to get that much iron in your diet as well especially if you're depending on plant-based products to fulfill a lot of that i mean there's definitely only so much meat that you can eat in a day So, yeah, it is quite difficult to meet, which is um, how we get a lot of patients coming through because they, they've um, tried endlessly through diet and oral iron supplementation and can sometimes just see that it's just not improving. Yeah. I, um, I remember in my post-grade studies, we had a, we had a, um, a nutrient sort of class and looked at a study. I think it was a journal club, actually, and we looked at a study that showed that um, the that you could that iron levels were raised like a tiny little bit when you had like red meat like twice a day, basically in an iron deficient sort of population. So yeah, that's as I understand it as well. That if you are deficient, you actually need to look at supplementation, effective supplementation, in order to sort of bring it up. Um, yeah, absolutely. Beth, what about iron injections? Is that different from iron infusions? Um, so generally, I only really know about intravenous iron. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in terms of iron injections, 
Um, not too sure on that one, I'm afraid. Yeah, no problem. Um, and what about iron and performance? So why is it important for an athlete to really um, get a good handle on their iron status? Yeah, absolutely. So with the increased kind of iron demand through exercise, um, you've got an increase in your metabolic output. Iron is very involved in um, metabolism at the mitochondrial level. Mm. Um, so it's really important to kind of just keep on top of these levels. You've obviously got your increased losses, as we discussed, through your sweating and inflammation. But it is important for athletes to look after this kind of um, their iron levels, really. Yeah. And... With regard to, uh, I suppose, your your next phase of research, and I don't know whether you'll be able to share any of this or not, but you mentioned that you're looking at iron deficiency sort of resolution. Have you come across any patterns, any early indication of, of sort of how quickly someone can resolve their symptoms? Yeah, so generally, this is kind of more from a very, very general kind of um, analysis of the data but it's looking at about maybe like three months after intravenous iron treatment you can kind of see that there is a kind of they finally got to the stage of having their energy back up and generally have noticed a lot of differences mm-hmm. um one of the things that gets commonly reported actually is hair loss and uh, on the other side of an infusion is hair improvement um but i feel like that one always um gets reported a lot later on because it, it would be difficult to notice an improvement in your hair growth until substantially further away yeah as I understand it's like about three months actually for sort of like for any sort of intervention in that space to to sort of kick off and when you give that sort of time frame with treatment how often are they getting treatment is it they just get one intravenous or do they get like one a week or how does that sort of look generally it's done on a total dose basis Ah, so it's kind of calculated off patient's body weight and um the indicators hematologically yeah. So, yeah. Generally, with the kind of modern products that are currently available for intravenous iron, that's um, it should be a one dose situation. However, there are different healthcare providers provide them in different doses. Um, yeah. This can be a result of them believing that um, a patient might need this staggered out a little bit more, depending on their circumstances. Um, previous preparations were developed at lower doses, um, but they're generally not used as much anymore. Okay. And. What is the hesitation? Like, I mean, I mean, I know that we sort of talked about this. Is it the fear that they'll get a huge dose of iron that will create oxidative stress and put them at increased risk of heart disease or something? You know, because I've seen literature looking at uh, sort of free iron and its potential to promote inflammation. So is it, do you think it's based around that or...? I think most of the hesitation is because it's so invasive and because people are aware of oral iron supplements on the market. and. Um, with intravenous iron this is obviously it's not a scary procedure but it does involve going into the hospital and having something cannulated Um, and I feel like that's where a lot of the the hesitation is from Um, patients do often report uh, this kind of post-infusion flu for the first few days after an infusion so this this really is like flu symptoms feeling really exhausted for the first three days Um, so that's where some of the hesitation can come from um, but generally, the risks are pretty low with intravenous iron. Um, it's a lot lower than blood transfusions. Therefore, in a clinical kind of environment, there's kind of an increase in popularity of it. Yeah. Okay. Super interesting. Um, Beth, so anything else with regards to iron metabolism, um, iron uh, groups at risk, or anything else that you feel 
that we need to cover in order to just raise awareness of this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, pregnancy is actually one of the the risk factors for iron deficiency that Mm. it often gets a lot of attention as just kind of normalizing oral iron supplements or feeling like the symptoms that they're having during and after pregnancy are very normal and shouldn't be dealt with. And there has been a lot of literature that has looked at postnatal depression and suggested that in some of these cases, it could be a result of an iron deficiency. And I think for mums who've just started out and are feeling exhausted and have a lot going on, it would be really important to raise awareness that this is just something they need to check and just see see how their ferritin level is doing because pregnancy costs a lot of your bodily iron. I mean, you only have between 3,000 to 4,000 milligrams of iron total. And the gestation period of pregnancy costs about 1,200 milligrams. And then you lose about a further 250 milligrams during labor, uh, which isn't including hemorrhage. And That's ha- if, basically half your iron. It could be half exactly. your iron. Yeah. It's so much iron. And then if you choose to breastfeed, it's another 200 milligrams of iron. This is yeah. it's so much iron. Like You just can't make up for that through your diet. So yeah, generally just increasing that awareness would be amazing. Um, and intravenous iron is only an option in the second and third trimester, but obviously oral iron supplements are something to look at as well. And just, yeah, paying yeah. attention to your iron levels during this time is really important. And Beth, are there any reasons why someone shouldn't take an iron supplement? Like, is, this, is there anything we need to be sort of cautious of, you know, cause people will hear these non-specific symptoms and then immediately go, oh, that must be my iron. Yeah, absolutely. So you shouldn't take oral iron supplements unless you've actually checked your hematological levels and discussed this with a professional because taking iron supplements without an iron deficiency just results in these negative side effects of diarrhea, constipation. And it's just, it's not, it's not necessary to do that if you don't have an iron deficiency. So absolutely check your levels. And if you're somewhere that has lower thresholds for diagnosing iron deficiency, it's always worthwhile to look at some of the literature and just double check because, yeah, if you have a ferritin under 30, that's really indicative that you need an intervention then. Yeah, that's awesome, Beth. And and finally, like, where is your research? What should we expect coming out of your um your lab with regards to the iron research? So you're based in Perth, is that correct? Yes, yes. So I'm currently studying in Perth and we're looking to do a big um, trial in my second and third year of my PhD studies, which is really going to focus on iron deficiency in the surgical setting. Ah. So it'll be really interesting because um, about, uh, I believe it's, let me check my figures on this, one in three patients um, prior to major operative surgery will be anemic. Mm. And then three in four patients after major operative surgery are anemic. So it's a really, um, it's a high risk factor for developing anemia. I mean, naturally, whichever condition they're presenting with can result in blood loss prior to the operation. They can have blood loss during the operation. There's a lot of inflammation associated with these processes. Um, so it's really looking to see whether or not intravenous iron as an intervention at some point during this process for them can really help improve their outcomes. As, yes. Yeah, having preoperative anemia really it's associated with worse patient outcomes in terms of their length of stay and just their recovery in general. That makes sense, just given just the ubiquitous role that iron has in the body, right? And it's yeah. And I always find it interesting when I discuss nutrients with 
people and I sort of describe where we use nutrients in the body and then then they appreciate why you can say oh taking an iron supplement can help with these 18 different things and they're like how can it possibly do that much and it's because we use these nutrients um in just an array of different um in uh, in our physiology really Absolutely. Yeah, it's so fundamental to so many of the bodily processes. I mean, metabolism and oxygen transport in itself is yeah. so fundamental that, yeah, in, in a time, especially like surgery, where you really just need as good a start as you can um, to improving. It's just, yeah, it's so fundamental. Yeah. It's interesting, Beth, because I've had many clients who go on iron supplements and even though they don't get, the, they probably don't get this an amazing sort of resolution of their symptoms, they noticeably appear and report feeling better even after a couple of weeks, which I find really interesting. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how there is that. As, as I said, my research on these different timeframes is just, it's been so fascinating to me because it's just, it's bizarre that these different outcomes could take such a substantially different amount of time based on our correction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there's a lot of different things that um, I can't wait to actually get the data out yeah. there. for them. Well, it's awesome, Beth, because practitioners like me love to sort of talk with the researchers about what they're doing. And we get really excited to hear that you've, you're just doing the work um, that helps inform our practice. So um, thank you so much for chatting to me today. And where can people find out more information about um, the research that you're doing and any potential studies that might be sort of going? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a really informative Facebook page called The Iron Clinic. Um, this is also on Instagram as well. And this kind of just keeps up to date information circulating about kind of identifying iron deficiency itself and just really understanding um, any of the current research that we're going to be releasing so yeah that would be a really good platform to have a look at that's awesome Beth. thank you so much for your time thank you very much Alrighty then so that is uh what we've got for you this week and next week on the podcast I sit down and have a chat to returning guest Dr Dan Blues until then though you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Bulletin Nutrition on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Bulletin or over on my website MickeyBulletin.com where in addition to the plans you can book a one-on-one consult with me all right team enjoy the rest of your week talk soon